Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast. This is episode 71 and I'm your regular host Corporal Hicks aka Aaron Percival and I'm actually going to be the only regular host on today because I've discovered something about our co-hosts guys. One doesn't read the uh, Alien Expanded Universe and the other is just incredibly slow getting through them. And this, guys, is the reason we don't really talk about the books on this show very much. I'm sorry. I've only just discovered this. And I've had to uh, assemble a special team. The backup team. <laughs> well, you can't think of yourselves like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Chevy is my ultimate backup guy. Um, <laughs> I've always got you as uh, as the you know the other interested party. But no, it's it's not a backup team. It's a specialised team with with the with the commandos, with the dog handlers, <laughs> coming in with a specific task to deal with and uh, crack on with it. So if you don't already recognise the voices, which they've both been on the show quite a few times, um, we have got Who the Fuck, aka Lee Byrne from Xenopedia. Oh yeah. And we have a recluse on the uh, the forums. But he's been on the show a few times, and he's my real-world alien buddy and everything elder buddy, uh, Chevy. Hey guys. So if it hasn't been made obvious, we're talking books. We're talking expanded universe. We're talking a specific book in the expanded universe, and that is none other than Alien: The Cold Forge, which is fucking awesome. And it's been one I've been wanting to talk about since it came out because of just how how much I love it and how great it is to actually have such a solid piece of you know alien expanded universe uh, of expanded universe lore because as much as i've liked the the more recent stuff you know the the initial trilogy from titan it all had like those one or two things that just sort of like kind of thing you know ripley's inclusion in out of the shadows yeah changing things in hadley's hope Mm, the family tie-in sea of sorrows as well and let's not even talk about Bug Hunt. That's <laughs> that's that's the whole other disappointment. But the Cold Forge was just phenomenal. Alex White, who uh, who was the author, we had him on for a interview around about the time the book came out, just after probably May time. And he is one of the most fun interviews I've ever had. Uh, such a cool dude, and you know, really into the series as well, which which really helps. I'm just gonna give it off to you guys just for a brief you know did you enjoy the book uh yeah loved it like as you say um i've quite enjoyed the recent books but this was just a a cut above i mean it's i think the main thing that struck me about it is i like a lot of the alien books but they're alien books you know they're not high literature they're just whereas this it wasn't just a great alien book i thought it was genuinely a really well-written intelligent book Mm -hmm. like even if you factored the fact of the alien connection out of it i i really really enjoyed it a lot yeah it's um i think it's it's immediately become my favorite of the alien books i've read course, for me uh i think it, it for me it doesn't even need the aliens to be a good book i think it's an excellent book without even having them in for me it could have quite happily been like a an expanded universe story just set within the world mm. I, I don't feel as though it needed the aliens to be this excellent book and that's because of the main villain of which we'll get into a little bit late. I think I think just the the whole cast of characters in it was enough to carry the um to to carry the plot. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of specific alien elements in it. You know, um, 
specific lore and world building kind of elements that I wouldn't say it rests upon them, but there's a lot in there that sort of influence it. But I think they could have been worked out to just, you know, be an alienless novel that's still really intriguing and still really gripping. But I think that would <laughs> that would severely uh, detract, you know, from the alien law having such an amazing book. Let's keep them. Let's keep them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know what you're saying. I think uh, I think it's just a big bonus having them in there, mm. really, for me. Uh, but I, I would have liked the book even if they weren't included. Yeah, definitely. I think. So um, Lee said, you know, probably his favourite book. What about you, Chevy? Ooh, now you see, I, I still like the um, the Sea of Sorrows book. I think that's still up there with one of my favourites. But uh, this would either be equal to or very close second for me. Okay. Mm, okay. Well, for me, it's top two, tied for first place between the Cold Forge and S. D. Perry's Berserker. That is a good read. And I've <laughs> I've read this twice in the last about three weeks. Reread it twice in in the last three weeks. I don't think I've reread any of the recent novels that quickly. Primarily because you know I've got a huge to read pile to get through. And as much as I've enjoyed the other stuff, I, you know I've. I've not been enticed into coming back to uh, reread it straight away. And to be honest, I, I was tempted after I'd finished my first read when it came out to just flip it straight back over and start again. <laughs> and I've not felt like that since I read my first Alien novels, which were uh, Earth Hive and Nightmare Asylum. And I got uh, an omnibus of the two. And they were the first of the novels I'd, I'd read. They were the only ones I'd got. I'd probably only got one issue of uh, Judge Dredd versus Aliens, so I didn't have a lot of lore, and when I'd done with those, I just turned them straight back over and started again. And that was primarily just because I got nothing else, but with this one, you know, to want to just go straight back into it, I, I can't I can't heap enough praise on this book, honestly. It's, I mean, there's, there's things in it we'll, we'll pick at, but I think it's all part of it, which is something that we'll probably mention throughout this, but yeah. Love this book. Couldn't recommend it enough. If you are listening to this and haven't read it, go back. Go out, buy it, come back, join in with the, um, you know, the the sugar vomiting that is the praise of this book. <laughs> Alex White, as far as I'm concerned now, is 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 a god of the alien law. He's he's alien royalty. He needs to come back and do some more. <laughs> and just just to offside a little bit here, speaking specifically of Alex White, I just before I reread this this week. I finished reading his new original novel, uh, which is A Big Ship at the Edge of the Universe. On the surface of it, it's not really my thing. You know, one of the main characters is a a race car driver. It's magic as well. There's a lot of magic involved in it. And I'm not really into fantasy. You know, I I can't stand uh, Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And A Big Ship at the Edge of the Universe was just... It was brilliant. It was gripping. Um, It was so much fun doing things with stuff I don't typically like and making them you know making me just flip through it same as i did with this uh with the cold forge so i do recommend giving that one a go as well i just hope i hope he comes back is is the end of that great writer yeah yeah i definitely like to see him come back and and do some more alien universe stories so let's start then shall we and i want to start with the synopsis of this book so we've we've been praising it we've been loving it what is it about? So according to the back of the book, with the failure of Hadley's hope, Wayland yutani has suffered a devastating setback. 
the loss of the aliens they aggressively sought to exploit. Yet there's a reason the company has risen to the top of the food chain. True to form, they have a redundancy already in place, the facility known as the Cold Forge. Remote station RB-232 has become their greatest asset in weaponizing the Xenomorphs. However, when Dorian Sudler is sent to RB-232 to assess their progress, he discovers there's a spy aboard, someone who doesn't necessarily act in the company's best interests. For Dorian, this is the most unforgivable of sins. When found, the perpetrator will be eliminated with extreme prejudice. If unmasked, though, this person may be forced to destroy the entire station and everyone on board. That is, if the Xenomorphs don't do the job first. So, that don't sound There's very There's some inspiring. foreshadowing in there, actually. In, what do you mean? In the synopsis. In terms of... The spy is unmasked. Foreshadowing. No? How are you thinking? Come on, train us. Lucy? Come on, yeah. Lucy. He takes a helmet off in vacuum. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Did not cotton on to that at all. <laughs> But then again, I've not been the sharpest of sticks lately. Here's another Alex White thing for you here. So, at the end of the book, there's a um, there's another android called Rook. Bishop Rook. So, and I think it was Rook in um, Colonial Marines. Or did they still call him Bishop? No, was it Rook earlier on? Yeah, I think it, there was a character called Rook that got cut or changed or because it wasn't in the finished game. But there was definitely talk beforehand of there being a character called Rook. So I messaged Alex and I uh, I asked him, you know, did you envision Rook as being the same model as Bishop? And Alex replies, similar, though Rook is more straightforward while Bishop moves obliquely. I said to him, still play balance? And he went, did my joke really fall that flat? <laughs> so yeah, I've not been the sharpest lately. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that I, I did wonder when i was rereading it if rook was meant to be you know a bishop model mm. so uh it's interesting to hear him say that chess joke aside that i completely missed um he did say he envisioned rook as a cheap seeks and knockoff of bishop mm. so yeah that synopsis does not sound particularly inspiring that sounds like well it doesn't sound terribly original mm-hmm. so what we got um spies so that's Bollocks. What's the, what's the wrong with the king? Why have I blanked on that? Rogue. Rogue, Rogue yeah. So that sounds like Rogue there. Yeah, also, uh, you had Massey in uh, Earth Earth Hive, the very first book. Yes. He was a, like yes. a corporate spy, wasn't he? But then again, wasn't he tailing them? I can't really remember it. So all I remember is that he's in it working for another company. And, uh, but it's been so long ago since I've read that book. If I, if I remember rightly, Massey had a second ship where he was working for Bio-National and he was following the government ship, mm. uh, the marine ship. But yeah, so, you know, we've seen that kind of thing before. We've seen the company weaponizing aliens before in, in Rogue. Well, no, he wasn't really weaponizing them in Rogue, but, you know, experimentation with them. And Labyrinth. Nightmare Asylum, he was uh, weaponizing yeah. them. But there's, there's no end of, of comics and books where they've got the aliens chained up and they're trying to do experiments on them there's some sort of corporate spies and the aliens get loose and kill everybody so it doesn't sound massively original however what alex and this book does with every single alien trope is just it it turns them on his head doesn't it you know so don't let that synopsis fool you there's so much more to this book than those typical sounding alien um, setups 
And even <laughs> they even use xenomorphs on the back, which the book makes a point of saying is just completely inappropriate name, you know, for the aliens, which I love, by yes, the way. Uh, someone points out that it's a, a completely generic term and could refer to anything. Mm. Yep. So that's why I hate I hate xenomorph as a name from purely because of that. But that, that's something that um, <laughs> uh, Jim Jim Moore, speaking of Chris's uh, favorite book and its author, um, Jim Moore. In his book, in his short in Bug Hunt, he referred to that creature in there as a xenomorph. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, completely misleading synopsis. Sounds like all the alien tropes, but that's not what the book does. But what the book mentioned in there, which I was curious as to your guys' opinions on, was, you know, it talks about the Cold Forge being a backup plan for um, Burke's uh, mission. So, that's a bit... There's a thing in the Alien Expanded Universe of, um, you know, how much did Wayland yutani truly know about the aliens and, you know, how involved they are and how deep they are in it. So for them to, this book to introduce a new layer to that now with them having a backup in place in case Burke fails, um, this is before he's gone to, um, you know, to, to Hadley's Hope, to LV-426. It's not a big part of the book, it's just a, a little bit of setup. but what did you think of it being a backup project? Well, I actually remember mentioning it at the time that the synopsis was first released because uh, River of Pain went big on the colony being there specifically because the company thought there might be something of value on the moon. And I never liked that angle. I preferred just the pure coincidence of them putting a colony there and there happened to be aliens and no one knew. So when when the uh, synopsis originally mentioned this being specifically there because the colony was apparently there to find aliens and you know that was all a, a plan they had i didn't like it but as, as you said it wound up being such a footnote in the book um that it ended up not being to the detriment of the story as i thought it was going to be when i first read about it and i think that's a bit that kind of thing is a is a point of contention for quite a few fans as to how much they truly knew and what was what was exactly happening so yeah yeah i don't think that's one of the ones where they're going to win them all uh, what about you chevy um what did you think of that i didn't feel as though burke actually knew too much in aliens but again it's one of these things into it like how much did they know i mean he knew enough to wipe the nostromo's recorder so uh it's not something that bothered me i'll say that um I haven't really got too much to say about it, to be honest. That's fair enough. It's it's just such it's just such a small point, but it was it was one I was curious about purely because of of how polarizing that kind of thing can be. It's not as obtrusive as say, oh, Hadley's Hope had a ship, <laughs> and oh, they had all these colonial marines. It's nothing like that. No, no. For, from memory, it's it's literally I think one line mentions it. Yeah. In the in the actual novel itself, I mean, the back of the book sets it up as like a key point. But it's literally just a line in the book, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Burke has nothing else to do with it, more or less. Although there are a couple of so. uh, teeny-weeny little references, um, such as that one, yep. which which are nice enough. You know, the Van Leeuwen thing with the... Um, it was the Suits reference, wasn't it? Or was it ties? It was something yeah, to do with his he, appearance. He, he ties his tie with a knot that would make Van Leeuwen weep or something. It was... Uh, and I, <laughs> I mentioned it before we started recording. If anyone has ever seen American Psycho, it's the business card scene. It really reminded me of that. Just these suits getting so 
inwardly irate over completely insignificant personal things. It was it was great. It brought a smile to my face. And of course, the Siegson mentioned throughout as well. Well, not throughout, primarily towards the end, I guess. But you know, there's some nice. There was, not, there was nods to isolation. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that the entire book, and White admitted as much in his uh, interview. The entire book has obviously been written by someone who was playing Isolation because a lot of the alien stuff later on is straight out of the game. Mm. In fact, it's it feels so much like Isolation that I've just gone back and started replaying it. Yeah. I've not I've not played through Isolation for a while, primarily because it's one of those ones I just like to sink in and play for hours until I'm done. You know, I don't think it's a dib and dab kind of game. I don't always have no. the I don't always have the time to to sit and just sink through a game like that but because i've reread the book a couple of times over the past couple of weeks i've just been so in the mood for it i couldn't i couldn't stop myself this morning i just booted it up and started again and oh my god i love that game so much and it is great to have stuff of that quality and of this quality um coming out these last few years but onto the book so dorian the book opens with uh, Dorian Sudler, who is this book's uh, bad guy. It's not the mad scientist that's the bad guy this time, although she's a bit of a bitch. But Dorian is a lot stronger than a, than a bitch. Wow, is Dorian a raging bellend. I will, I'll go for that. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd, rather, I think... I'd rather use the Australian and the British um, C swear word, but that's... I don't think the uh, streaming sites would be too pleased with that. <laughs> Dorian Sudley, the only character to ever make you hate him within the first page. <laughs> mm. yeah. So Dorian opens the book and straight away you have got this sense of, of who he is. And Alex plays that so consistently throughout the book. And, you know, it's the, the, the point of view um, is primarily told through Dorian. It's primarily told through Blue. The, uh, the aforementioned mad scientist but this first chapter oh my god how he, how he showed who he was straight away was just yep. that's phenomenal I think I messaged you did I I listened to the first bit and I messaged you I already fucking hate Dorian <laughs> <laughs> but it's great because you're supposed to you know this is um, this is Joffrey from Game of Thrones level of you are supposed to hate this bastard kind of thing I, I mean and collectively we've all been going you know big for this book but i can hand on heart say i have never come across such a deliciously vile character as dorian in this book he is just horrendous but he's so engaging as well like he's not just an arsehole for the sake of being an arsehole like you could you can almost believe this man could be real and could be this petty and and arrogant and selfish he's just he's, he's a fantastic character he's one of my favorite characters from anything that i have ever seen yeah. or read or played he's just wonderful i mean horrible but wonderful and he gets off on it as well mm. he gets off on it he loves it that's all a game to him yeah which is which i thought was a really a really interesting uh way that alex alex wrote him was to quite clearly show the contrast between his his inner thoughts, you know, how he was going to play things and what he genuinely thought, and then with what he said and how he represented himself on the on you know on the outside, that alone just sets up how much of a dickhead this guy is. 
Uh, how how did you feel about that that particular technique? You know, did was was it that one of the elements that really put across what a knob this guy was to you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The fact that he's like this remorselessly dickish to everybody, and yet he enjoys it, and the way that he enjoys manipulating people ahead of time. Like, there's bits in the middle of the book where he's setting people up for his end game. Like, he's just dropping little comments or making certain statements to get inside people's heads and, you know, twist their opinions in the direction he wants them to go. It was it was brilliant. I loved it. I like that bit with Lucy, um, just sort of towards the, you know, the last third of the book, when he's figured oh. out that she's the... Um, the corporate, yeah, she, the corporate she, spy. She, she's the spy. And he goes up to her and he, he says to her, you know, this wasn't your fault to get in her head. It's it's little moments like that, and then him actually playing through them. Oh, brilliant! God, he's so good, so good. He's the best villain in any series <laughs> I have <laughs> ever seen. <laughs> Easily the best villain in the Alien. Easily. Yeah. What else I thought was pretty uh, was funny in a sad way kind of thing was that his plight throughout the book is entirely his own doing. Because he goes through all this crap to try and keep somebody and the crew alive, because he doesn't know the pod, um, the podcast escape, um, the escape pod <laughs> codes. Yeah, he's so he's so arrogant. He doesn't think that he'll need them, and then it turns out the one thing that he's ignored is the one thing that he needed to save his life. And that that's a, a thing the book makes a point of early on. You know, is how much he doesn't give a shit about the um, the the codes and the sort of safety packet things that it gets given at all these um all these facilities so i thought that w- that was really funny well it's below him uh, but yeah. the thing the, the silly thing is he actually gets away with it he gets away with it and then he can't let blue go he mm-hmm. has to be there before mm. he leaves and that's what kills him yeah, his desire true. to win which which kills him and even then i still don't think his end was um punishing enough well, that that's that shows you how brilliantly written the character was, because at the end of the book, he is he's killed by a chestburster. But I assume we're allowed to talk about spoilers in this. Yeah, but the thing is, you, you hate him so much that that isn't a bad enough death. Mm. Like you want something worse to happen to him. And I completely accept that the death he suffers is like the in terms of thematically it's the perfect end to his character but you you want worse to happen mm. to this guy he but gets off lightly with he's that. happy about yeah, it though he's win, like yes my spawn <laughs> yeah. he's coming from me this perfect organism is coming from me it's gonna have my dna he loves it he loves <laughs> it well, i think it's safe to say is uh he's he's well well off the reservation by that point mm. oh yeah <laughs> that's, that's something he thinks about earlier on as well though isn't it you know this concept of his DNA being involved with, um, you know, with the aliens. Alien, yeah. But that's actually something that I, I, I enjoy is this idea of people wanting to birth a chestburster for various reasons, mm. whether that be something like somebody who who couldn't conceive, something like that. You know, kind of twisted levels of it, but that kind of thing I think is really interesting. So that was another element to to Sudler and his death that I liked. Another thing, another thing that I liked, and again, it's, it's an Alex thing, an Alex White thing. So like I mentioned with his his recent book, his new one, 
you know, there's a race car driver. How many race car drivers do you end up with in a sci-fi book and a spaceship book? <laughs> and with with Suddler, we don't have our mad scientist of the Cold Forge being the uh, being the bad guy. It's a fucking auditor. An accountant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not exactly the most aggressive of roles. <laughs> well, I guess that de- yeah depends on who. Well, you yeah. To. But no, that that was another so. little thing that turned it around that I really liked, and I think there's a lot of things in this book that are just sort of under the surface or just little things that aren't quite what would normally happen. That I think just sort of they're there enough for you to notice and elevate it up a little bit more past that sort of um, generic sounding synopsis and there's there was another thing as well this um this concept of him wanting to outlive his old life via cryosleep which was cool and uh, mm-hmm. i think what i think the captain of his um of his sort of like private little ship also had a thing about outliving people he owed debt to yeah that was a neat touch he was he was in debt to bad people and uh and it, it's it sets it up as that's the reason he's taken the job and your your initial thought is Oh, to earn the money to pay them back. Uh, but that's not it. He just wants to go out into space where he can spend months on end in hypersleep. And the people he owes money to are all going to die because they're living their life on Earth. I thought that was a really neat twist on where I thought that was going. Mm. And with, with Suddler, it's not necessarily the money thing. It's 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 how surviving his old, you know, his parents and his, his old friends and his chest tutor, I think they made a point of as well, because he really yeah. did not like him. <laughs> so it's it's lots of little things that i think really add to it but then here's a question for you because suddler when he's introduced to the aliens he gets a bit of a um i guess a bit of a hard-on for them you know this whole concept oh, yeah. so while he might he might not be the mad scientist he does still end up with you know a fascination around the aliens you know to the point where he sort of fantasized about his skin splitting apart and finding a chin um, under you know under this dead skin becoming an alien kind of thing so guys is the alien fascination thing getting old as a as a bad guy motivation how, how did you stomach um dorian's you know obsession in in the book to me i i haven't noticed it so much i don't think in the last three books it's been much of a theme. The last three being the Rage Wars, you think? Uh, no, not the Rage Wars. Uh, even the Rage Wars, I don't think it was a thing. Well, the the Rage Wars is purposely a completely different kind of alien and predator thing, I think. I was more referring to, like, Out of the Shadows and that, that trilogy. I don't really think that was a thing. I think maybe that's more of a... Is it more of a comic? It's, def- it's definitely there in the comics. It's definitely there in the comics. Right. See, that's where I probably wouldn't really pick up on it. But, so this is really like one of the first times I've ever been where he like he, he wants to be he basically wants to be one really he, I, I don't know he's he's a very uh, very twisted guy okay, okay then is is somebody who hasn't really experienced the, the alien fascination thing then I'll, I'll leave that one for Lee later how how did you like that <laughs> angle with um, with Dorian then with that motivation for him for Dorian I think it suits him to the ground. I think he could easily be one of them with how uh, ruthless he is with everything that he does. So, yeah, it, to, to me, he he might as well have been one for how cold and calculating he is. Go on then, Lee. What did you think? I think you're... Oh, no, you don't really like the old comics, do you? 
No, I'm, well, I'm not really a comic book guy. The only exposure I've really had was the novel of Music of the Spears, which has obviously got Eddington in, who falls head over heels for the alien. But it, again, it comes back to the same old thing. It's not the fact that he's like obsessed with the aliens. It's the execution of it that makes it so good in this book. Like It wouldn't matter if I'd seen it before, because it's it's so well done in this that it kind of didn't matter if it was a, a, a recycled plot point. Okay. I can't say it bothered me in particular either, because um, there's still lots of things to do with the fascination thing that I'd like to see revisited. I'd really like to see <laughs> a cult, and now I'm having flashbacks to um, Covenant Origins right now, but like a religious cult around the aliens. Yeah, see, I've not read that one yet either. Well, <laughs> in regards to that one, it's, it's not so much an alien-focused cult, um, but... You know, you had things like in the in the very first comic, and then the novel adaptations of them was this Salvage. Oh yeah, Salvage or something. I don't know how you pronounce that. And that's the thing that comes up occasionally, but I don't think it's been something that's properly been exploited. So I'd love to see those as a you know that kind of um, group as a, a bad guy throughout an entire book. But yeah, the fascination thing is it's something that. I think probably crops up more in the comics as we're evidencing here, but, you know, it, it has been in some of the novels. But no, I don't think it's getting old. You know, like, like you said, Lee, the, um, the execution with Suddler, it's just one layer upon many layers of this complex and utter bastard of a character that <laughs> works so well. And I, you know what, I'd have been interested to see it play out a little bit more. So, like, you know, when he was having the fantasies about becoming an alien... And it appeared under his skin. A callback to Alien 3 and the uh, the change. Uh, William Gibson's Alien 3, sorry. And the change. Um, it made me think that perhaps he was going to end up with some of the um, plagiarists on him. And something like that might happen. But no, that wasn't something Alex ever intended to play with. But that could have been fun. I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the change visualised in the new comic, actually. That should be fun. Mm, yeah. Okay, well, I think... Dorian works as a bad guy then. I think we're all happy with that. <laughs> We've established that. Yeah. Now what about our hero in quotation marks? So uh, as I keep saying, you know, she's the book's uh, mad scientist. But she's not a hero. And she's not a bad guy. Uh, Blue uh, Marsalis is her name. And she is also so interesting a character. You know, there's a lot going on with her. So she is disabled um, due to a rare genetic illness that sort of ravaged her body to the point where she can barely move around and has to use an android, has to pilot an android to get around. And she's there to weaponize the aliens, but she's she's not. She's found another uh, she's found another use for them. Now there's a whole lot here to sort of unpack that I really like as well because you know it takes a bit of what we've always considered, you know, alien law that you don't really think about it, do you? You know, a chestburster, a face hugger implants a chestburster. That's just how it's, you know, it's always been. But um, Cold Forge sort of puts across that it injects um, a substance that they named the uh, Plagiarius Prepotence or the other way around, something like that. Apologies if I've oh, the pronunciation. Plagi- Plagiarius Prepotence, I yeah. think it is. That essentially makes the chest burst to grow inside the um you know it uses the host's uh, body and dna and makes it grow within it which is which is cool in its own thing because 
that's a nice lore connection to Prometheus and the Accelerant and the Black Goo, but it's it's also something that I, I'm fairly sure that um, Anchor Point Essays, the uh, fan site from the, like the early 2000s, put across was this idea that perhaps something like that could be happening. So I really liked that. I also really liked that it did connect to um, to Prometheus as well. Going back even before Anchor Point, um, back to the old Aliens magazine in the UK in the 90s, that had a couple of pieces on alien biology. And one of the things that I suggested was that it doesn't literally put a chestburster in you. It puts something in you that causes your own cells to construct the chestburster from your own body materials. So it, even going all the way back to that, it kind of it tied into all of all of that sort of stuff. So what did you guys think of that? Was that is that something you enjoyed uh, the different take? Yeah, well, I've I always liked that idea back from when I read it in Aliens magazine. So I was quite happy to see someone sort of unintentionally, according to White, he had no prior knowledge of this, but link into that concept. And also, of course, it the way he describes the plagiarus, it definitely ties into the, the black liquid in Ridley's prequel films. I mean, it's, it's never said to be exactly the same thing, but there are very obvious similarities between the two. I'm pretty sure Alex sort of confirms that it with when when I spoke to him. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Right, I, I absolutely love it as well. That is something I do like. It's I think it's a bit better than uh, the laying of the embryo type thing, which kind of makes me question the David thing at the end of Covenant with bringing up the the embryo things. So that's another question now. Well, to be fair, like, they, where they, do they come from? They were baby chest. Uh, they were baby facehuggers, though. Yeah, but it's like so. So where where do they come from? But it's like for this, I, I think it makes it makes total sense, and I love how it's it's connected some dots to the prequel films as well. Yeah, definitely. But then even you know even more interesting, I think, is the way he turns another trope around. So you know she's she's there as far as they're concerned to experiment on you know the alien genetics to tame them you know weaponize them the kind of thing that we've done thousands of times thousands of times probably an exaggeration but um a ton of times in the comics and the games and the books yeah and she turns it around to try and use it for medical purposes and that is something that i really liked because with it being a non-weaponized thing that she was aiming for it reminded me of something that never really gets played with in in the alien universe and that is other uses for for the aliens I mean, Resurrection would give us a line, a dialogue where it was something like there's more to the aliens than simply urban pacification, I think they said. To actually see it in play here, you know, I can't think of any other really real uh, examples of it taking place in the lore. So that was awesome. I really, really, really liked turning that trope around on its head. And that served as a bit of, I suppose, complex motivation for her as well, or, you know, a layer to her and to the story is that she's trying yeah. to use this thing to cure all genetic diseases. But her dedication to it is to save her own life. Yeah, it's purely selfish motivation at any cost. With, with a huge benefit, though, if she pulls this off. So Yeah, yeah she, she does mention that it can help, you know, millions of other people. But it's, it's clear that her primary focus is she wants her life back. You know, she doesn't want yeah. to be trapped in this this rotting body anymore. She wants to be a person again. So yeah, and who wouldn't? A, yeah, exactly. Understandable, but still a selfish motivation. So two questions here then. 
did you guys enjoy the twist on what the mad scientist was doing with the aliens? And considering that it was it was it was her being selfish, do you actually like Blue? No, no. I, I to be honest with you, I found that the book. I've never read a book where I don't really like any of the characters. <laughs> That's complicated. <laughs> But it's for purely, purely like for the right reasons. It's the the way that it's because it's all about characters. All these characters have got their own motivation, and it's just I just don't like any of them. I don't know, but it's so good that I don't like any of them. They're all flawed people. That's the point. They're they're not very black or white. They're all grey. With yeah, with the possible exception of Marcus the android, every character in it is a shade of grey, which is interesting. Yeah. And I think that adds a level of complexity to it that you don't generally, you don't generally get. Oh yeah, absolutely. So Chevy, you don't like blue? Did you no. like? Did you like the alternative methods for what to do with the alien? Did you? Did you like them specifically going for something other than urban pacification? I did. I, it, I think it's it's a great angle to explore. But I will say I do love how she eventually gets her sample, which is genius but i'm sure we'll get to that later mm, that is something i did want to ask you guys about actually okay so you, you're digging that so lee uh, how are you feeling on blue and, and the medical angle yeah i uh i loved the idea of her alternative motive and again it was just another way where he he took a trope and turned it on its head because she was supposed to be doing what they always do in these books and these games is you know, somehow domesticate the alien, turn it into a weapon. That was her brief. But on the side, she was completely ignoring that, and she was trying to do something that has a more believable purpose. Like the idea of putting a leash on an alien and, and unleashing it on your enemies, it doesn't really work when you think about it. There are easier ways that you could deal with that problem than, than unleashing an alien on them. Whereas using its biology to try and cure diseases you know it's it's unique biology to solve problems that we can't solve ourselves with what we have i thought that was a you know a much more believable goal and it was one that i was really like to see her pursuing even if as we've said her motivation was mostly selfish but even even saying that i did like her character i mean i completely understood why she was doing what she was doing she, you know, she she certainly never intended to get everyone on the station killed. And most of the time when she does do something a bit dark, you kind of feel like she's earned it. You know, she's been through so much, not just in the book, but you can tell from in the past with her disease that she is suffering. You can tell like she's been through yeah. so much that you can kind of give her, you know, you can give her her grief and her anguish and her anger. So, yeah, I, I liked her. But above all, just a fascinating character. Mm. Definitely. so many layers to it. the thing with the thing with unlikable characters is you've got to make them interesting that's yeah that's something alien 3 fails with i think that's something that there's another book uh, criminal enterprises aliens that you know that has that same sort of syndrome where everybody in the book's fucking knobhead um <laughs> but they're not interesting so it's not as much fun to to stick with but i think you know like you said blue blue was fascinating as much as she might have had selfish motivations that would have had massively positive side effects. She was just a joy to stick with and a joy in an interesting way. And I don't even feel like she makes that many silly, you know, silly decisions. 
the her main one I'll give her is the um, not sacking off the kennels, which I think is something you mentioned to me, Chevy. Yeah, uh, the way she's out, she, she had one bolt to release, didn't she, to release the skiff? But I think with the communications blackout and being midway through a conversation of what to do, she just came back without letting it go. So I, I think I do understand hmm. why, because it's one of them things, isn't it? I mean, they were saying inside we can get out without them getting to us. And she loved the person who was in there, Anne. So I mean, it's it's kind of a hard thing into. You, you don't want you don't want to jettison someone you love off into. It. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's one of them things. It's, and then the re- we've all been there. Obviously, cuts. Yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> Everyone's had that choice. Yeah, it, it's one of them hard decisions. I, I will disagree that she she doesn't make silly decisions. Uh, I think she does it more out of necessity for herself. Uh, for example, with the the chimps, where she she more or less blackmails um oh what do you, what do you call him? Cambili. I can't remember his name. Cambili into prepping the chimp. He, he's got no experience with what he's doing. Gets his face ripped off by a chimp. And then there was the <laughs> the egg crates as well, where she used the master unlock co- the unlock code and unlocked all of them, which basically exposed everybody on the station to face huggers. Well, to be fair with that one, you know... That... She did it out of her own selfish necessity. There was no... That, that's a, that was a future problem for her. You know, the concern at the time was the big aliens. I don't think anybody had realised that they'd been kidnapped to start a hive by that point. And like I think like she said, she it was either an individual code for all the containers... Yeah. Or a master one, and she has no fucking idea what the individual code would have been. Yeah, she did. She did say that she might not have ever even seen this box before. So it is. I think Alex plays on like the small decisions that you make in a split second can have massive consequences later on. Like Dorian not bothering to learn his escape code. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could have just booked it as soon as that kicked off. You could have just gone. Had he known. Mm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point actually with the uh, you know the small decisions thing. I hadn't really cottoned on to that one. Um, okay, so I I liked her. I must be honest. I, as in, I found her interesting. I wouldn't say I liked her as a person. I'd hate working for her. Oh no no, I I completely I completely agree. I I, I like her in that respect, but I do not like her. <laughs> I can't argue with that. And. You know what? Her other thing with the brain direct interface, the BDI, and controlling Marcus, who uh, Lee mentioned earlier, that was different. That's not something we've really seen played with before. So, Lee, do you want to explain, you know, what the crack with is with that one, and and was that something that you liked? Yeah, the the basic idea is because of her degenerative disease, she's mostly bedridden she's not paralyzed she can move but you know her muscles are mostly wasted away she's incredibly feeble uh, so she basically spends her time lying in in her bed and then she wears a uh, a sort of cap with sensors on it that allows her to control the station synthetic like a surrogate so she lives her life through the synthetic's body so you see marcus walking around but the personality inside is blue and yeah that was a fascinating twist that like you said we've not we've had so many synthetics in this series and that's never been done before i'm aware it's been done elsewhere but it was and he did so much with it like uh the chief of security on the station a character called Anne. 
uh, it's mentioned that prior to the book, the two of them had a relationship where they would be together, but Blue would be in Marcus's body. So, so although they were both women, one of the participants in sort of the intimate relationship was male. And it was just, again, so many layers to that scenario. And so unlike anything we've seen in the expanded universe before, it was just that everything about Blue was just incredibly interesting. There was a new term as well that came up in this book that I've never heard of as well. Was that Anne had what what they called synthetish, which uh, I thought yeah, was really uh, interesting. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, yes, it was the idea certain people are specifically attracted to androids rather than people. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 really little touches like that. Yeah, you know that'll be a thing though when we get more realistic sort of artificial skin you know, one of the first things they'll sell is sex bots and you know people like that will start <laughs> cropping up cheaper <laughs> plus you know when they when you're in when they're in your ear all the time you can just turn them off <laughs> wow okay <laughs> disclaimer on that not genuine opinion <laughs> that, that, that's that's lee's thing if you need to send him any hate mail um, but that was that was something else that I loved about the book. So you mentioned the the thing about her being in Marcus's body, her bit blue being in a male body. This book has so many layers of themes that are just sort of under the surface that it touches on and it it brings up, but it doesn't it doesn't shove in your face. So something like that, you know. And I think this is something Clara might have. Um, brought up in the perfect organisms uh, podcast on the book it wasn't something i'd really noticed until she mentioned it and i couldn't help but see it you know as we were as i was doing the rereads and you know that's things like the gender identity of of that thing you know of people not necessarily i don't really know how to to get into it without because obviously i don't experience this myself but you know the idea of being uncomfortable in your own skin actually i think i messaged you about this saying uh, i think because at the time, if you remember, I said, I think it's a bit bad. Why aren't there any female androids? She's a woman trapped in a man's body, basically. I think I missed you about that as well. At the end of the... It comes up again at the end of the book, because, you know, they go to the it effort of, of giving her an android body that is close to her in her prime. You know, she was this fit, you know, fit woman. Uh, but at the end, she tells them to cough because she wants a male body. Yep. So... It's not something the book throws in your face, but it I, it was it was just under the surface. And, and when somebody had mentioned it, whether it was you or Clara, and I noticed it, I was like, wow, that's that's actually got some pretty nice little deep elements in here. And then there was things like, you know, losing humanity because of ease of machines and things like that. There was lots going on just under the surface. And I, I really liked that. I really loved it. I do think you'll miss things if you only read it once and put it down. Hmm. You've got to go through a few times to, to pick up the little bits. Hmm. And another thing that is something that wasn't it wasn't on the surface, but it's something that's needed and something that I think elevates things is that the book had so much representation in it as well. You know, Blue is a disabled gay black woman. You know, we've had um, what was the name in Defiance? I can't remember a name because I hate the last half of that that series so oh much. uh i don't zulu. remember zulu yeah zula that was zula. it 
So that's something that we've had there as well. But you know, there was um, you had people like Javier as well in there, and um, the the other guy, not Silver Smile, not Glitter Edifice, um, oh uh, Rose Eagle, Joseph. yeah, in Joseph. there as well. I've no idea how you pronounce that, but Joe is how it is spelled. Mm. <laughs> Um, I think he was supposed to be, um, you know, Spanish or something like that. But it's not something that gets shoved in your face, but it's something that I've only recently come to realise how is is really important to people um, that might, you know, might not necessarily see people of their, you know, uh, race or persuasion or ethnicity or whatever in the books. And that was something that I really liked seeing in this. Because I think Alex has, um, you know, he, I think he recently came out on Twitter as... Uh, as bisexual as well so it's something that matters to him and to see them in in the book but you know just under the layer and under the surface enough to make me think about when i saw it uh, added a, a nice layer of complexity and of you know you know it, it was just there and it made me think about it when i noticed it and i liked that i thought it was good yeah i know what you mean it was it was there but it wasn't made obvious it wasn't overt that it was giving this to you it was just it was just it just it was background uh, yeah it like a there. lot of this stuff. Yeah, it was there, you noticed it, you appreciated it, but it wasn't, you know, the main event. It was just building the world, making a, a stick, you know, more diverse world. Hmm. Another element of making it feel real. Yeah, yep. exactly. So, as I failed to remember some of the other projects in this, um, I want to talk about Silver Smile, and only be briefly, because obviously you guys don't like the comics. Um, so... The Blue's experimentation with the aliens was one of three projects on the Cold Forge. Um, her project was called Glitter Edifice, which I thought was awesome. I love that. Joseph's project that we mentioned was called Rose Eagle, and his thing was this fancy communications device that was able to sort of hack into and disrupt um, quantum communications, I think they called it. And the other one was something called Silver Smile, which was this sort of doomsday virus kind of thing computer virus yeah where it just it got into a system and it intuited what was important destroyed the data and made it go all wrong and that's something that fucks up the station i'd say later on on purpose it's not just a you know a mess up kind of thing it was sabotage that sets a lot of the a lot of the you know the middle of the book and towards the end of it going but what I thought was interesting, it was it actually reminded me of the big deletion. So for those who don't know, um, before Alien Resurrection was released, there was probably the golden age of Alien comics. It was, there was just loads of comics set after Alien 3, um, with all these sort of alien encounters and incidents. And then Resurrection comes around and you know pretty much just wipes all that out with saying that Ripley basically killed the aliens off when she killed herself at the end of Alien 3. So to sort of solve this apparent contradiction, when AVP came out, the film, they released a couple of little uh, digest-style comics called Alien Thrill of the Hunt and Alien Civilized... Uh, AVP Thrill of the Hunt and AVP Civilized Beasts. It was like a little twofer that were kind of like sequels to that. And in the first one, in Thrill of the Hunt, they put across this thing, this event known as the Big Deletion, which was like a second uh, Dark Age in which a computer virus wiped out and loads of, you know, knowledge and information and that was apparently why nobody knew of, of the aliens when Resurrection rolled around and why they went to all that trouble. It's a bit, eh, kind of thing in, you know, in the actual lore, but I, I liked that 
it sort of reminded me of it. I doubt it was intentional, um, but I liked that. But the other projects then, I mean, obviously if you guys are aware of the big deletion chip and on what you think of it, but Chevy's and I'm not sure how aware you are of it, Lee. Uh, aware of it, but I've never read the comics that deal with it. So, Fair enough. so that probably didn't connect with you then. Yeah, well, I mean, from what I know, I'm, I'm kind of on the same page as you. It's, it's a bit of a stretch, but I guess, you know, at least they tried something. But it doesn't really hold up. I mean, especially when you consider that in the early comics, the entire Earth is completely taken <laughs> over yeah. by aliens. The idea that people you know, in a few years' time could completely forget about that just because some files got erased doesn't really hold water. <laughs> but, you know. I had no idea it was that bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said it was a little... It's not even <laughs> But the other projects, then? Um, how did you feel about those? Were they interesting to you? Did they did they work in the book? Uh, yeah, they all served a purpose. I mean, Silver Smile is what causes shit to royally hit the fan, and Rose Eagle is sort of their lifeline afterwards. It's it's their possibility for co- contacting help and and getting rescued. So they both served a purpose, and you know they both came across as realistic, something that a government would want. Yeah, uh, yeah, I liked them. So I liked them as well. I, th- I thought, like you said, they served a purpose. Other than that, really, th- there's not a lot to really say about them, really. They're, they're not really touched on all that much other than Silver Smile. No, that's only because it's purely the uh, the catalyst, I guess, for everything going wrong. Yep. So we've touched on the aliens briefly then, but we haven't really talked about the, the, the big ones. Um, one thing that I really liked in this was that he called the Alex called back to the DNA reflex theory. You know, it's not something that you see get played with outside of the Predalien, really, and the uh, you know the runner, obviously. And that he had the host being uh, was and I can never I never know the difference between chimps and monkeys and stuff like that. I'm a terrible um, chimpanzee. Yeah. Um, so he has them being chimpanzees, and he specifically mentions that they notice that they're different to the human-born ones, which I thought was really cool. I really like that. But... Yeah, uh, it's not even before they even get loose and start breeding out of people. They mentioned that the aliens they have bred from chimps, they notice that they look different to the file photos that they have been given. And obviously, whatever data they have been given, these have come from people. And they obviously notice that theirs look a bit like chimps, but the ones in these files, they look a bit like people. And they kind of realize that, you know, somewhere down the line, someone's had a bad day. Yeah, you know, and that was that was a nice creepy little touch. Like, yeah, I think he actually says, "Don't he?" I'd hate to have been the people to have found these. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know it's not something that plays a massive deal in the story, but it's just another one of those little elements where it's like, huh, that, this doesn't get played with often. It's nice to see this um, acknowledged. Oh, it's nice again. Yeah. Although, to be honest, I would like to see somebody play with the DNA reflex properly. Go read Eric Red's script, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I said properly. Come on. <laughs> Not with madness. That was that was actually one of the things that disappointed me about one of your favourites was Rogue. Was um, they specifically talk about selective breeding um, to sort of get the behavioural traits that they're after in the aliens? Yeah. But it's not. It all the same. The, uh... Yeah. So I I would like to see that played on a bit more in some future stuff if anybody's listening. <laughs> uh, but behavior then what did you guys feel did did you like how alex portrayed the aliens and their general 
you know, general behaviour. Isolation aliens. Yep, definitely. Totally. Yep. And they had weight to them as well, which is very unusual. Mm. Uh, I think there's there's a section where Dorian is crawling through, is it an electric type vent, which goes underneath some decking? One actually stands on him, mm. crushing him. It's like, yeah, it's nice to actually, to actually have some kind of description of that they are big, heavy creatures. Uh, things like that, although, again, with his twisted fascination, he's all about wanting to touch it and things, but yeah, the way they move and things, I, I absolutely love the way he described it in the book. There's there's a bit where he describes one as, is it dripping down from the ceiling? Yeah. And it really conjures up this image of it just sort of flowing and then, you know, dropping to the floor and rising in front of you. You know, it was it was a fantastic bit of description. And uh, But I, I, it's, it's been mentioned elsewhere. One of the things I really liked about this book was that for a lot of the story, even after they're loose, the aliens are kind of incidental. You know, it's not just constant scenes of people blasting aliens or people being killed by aliens. You know, they're there and they're a threat. But in some ways, the people themselves, are, you know, as much of a threat to each other as the creatures. You know, whenever they show up, they're terrifying and they're, they're powerful and they're intelligent. But there are long periods where, you know, they're not the focus of the story. And that, again, was a nice change. Yep. It's, it's a, a throwback in sort of tone and atmosphere to Alien. And to isolation as well, you know. For Alien, it's the th- the fear of it not seeing it and it being there and you're not, you know, physically having it in your face. And with isolation, you know, it might be in the rafters, you might hear it, but you don't see it and it's not physically in front of you. And that's that was the same sort of atmosphere that I think Alex put in, in this book that worked really well. And and to be honest, I it, it really put me in the mood for isolation. I think I mentioned that. You know, go back yeah, yeah. Um, I liked that the aliens made use of their tails. That's another thing that I don't think other law does enough. So, like when I think it's Ken, the uh, the Aussie um, sort of zoo and animal handler, when uh, he Dick. dies. Yeah. Is it Dick? Ken's the pilot of oh, the yes, Dorian yes, ship. Son. No, it's Dick. Yeah, sorry. Um, when he gets killed, it's an alien impaling him with its tail mm. that scene was pretty grisly yeah yeah, yeah. happens a few times actually doesn't it with the, mm-hmm. with the tails being yeah that's yeah, how well, um, um, the co-pilot so I think the yeah, co-pilot gets it as well yeah Susie so that's that's just another example of one of those little things that doesn't necessarily get used a lot or acknowledged a lot just showing up in this and it's one of those things where I'm like yeah damn it that's good <laughs> although I do wish they'd do the um, the neurotoxin thing a bit more which is only really. Yeah, I, did, I did feel sorry oh, for. Yeah. Uh, I did feel sorry for Dick. I think he's the only guy I actually liked. <laughs> <laughs> he was just this drunk vet, just getting on with his life. <laughs> and he's an Aussie. Who doesn't love Aussies? Yep. They have the best accent in the world. Okay. No, I really, just, I really you know, like Dick. Poor Dick, chilling what? out on this deep space weapons research station, off his face on cocaine, pissed out of his head. <laughs> Yeah, occasionally looking after some aliens. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't die well. See, I loved uh, it as well, where uh, he mentions that the first two aliens had worked. He, he nicknamed them, and they got really upset that they had to kill them. He <laughs> calls them all puppies, don't he? Yeah, he calls them all puppies. Yeah. God, he was fucking. But crazy. the best thing is about the the audio book narration is that he actually puts on an Australian accent as well, so you get the full 
dick experience. (laughs) (laughs) So the aliens were fucking brutal in this. Um, There was a bit with... What's his face? The guy who um, gets his hands bitten off. Oh, yeah. That was uh, Javier, wasn't it? The IT guy, wasn't that when she finds him? Yeah, Javier, yeah. That's after Dory ditched him. Mm. In that case, he fucking deserves it. <laughs> I hate Javier. I'm just gonna say And there was now. something about his legs as well, but she couldn't see what was wrong with his legs. Yeah, the idea is he's been mangled pretty badly to to put him in there, I think. Mm. He's been cocooned and uh Yeah, I think uh, yeah. a lot of the perception is that when the aliens take you they just knock you unconscious and put you in the wall. This one had them being maimed, broken bones, broken ribs, like your eye popping out your socket ah. Oh. I think yeah. that was- that was brutal. perfect as well. Yep, and, I agree. And again, it's a nice, so a nice callback to Alien as well. You know, um, Lambert's one of Lambert's uh, sort of alternate death things was um, the alien trying to pull her back through the vents, and her sort of mangled body not being able to fit through it, and she's just sort of hanging out of it. Because that's what happens to Anne as well, isn't it? You know, they cram her through a vent. Uh, yeah. that she shouldn't be able to fit through and Blue's making a point of observing how her body must have been absolutely broken to be pulled through it. Yep. I loved it. I loved how brutal they were and how effective they were because that's something that I think the EU has a bit of a bad rep for and quite rightfully so is it has a rep of treating them like throwaway bugs and a lot of them do and to actually have you know a, a new piece treat them so deadly and so effective it's another one of those little little refreshing things that helps elevate it as far as i'm concerned yeah so one of my favorite bits that comes out of this book is where javier and dorian are in juno's cage trying to get the system back online is it juno's cage or the other one and he goes to open titus that's it dorian sneaks off because he sees on the cameras that this alien's coming and Javier's just talking away as if he's talking to Dorian, not realising that he's gone. Turns around, see that he's gone, hears something coming, and goes to try and get into this grave, but because of the way the metal is, makes a noise, and he's trying to get into it, and the alien comes up to him, doesn't attack him, and as Dorian explains it, it's as if it, the alien wants him to see it, like, see the alien, to see that he's fucked, basically, <laughs> yeah. before he does anything. And I thought, genius so they're taking pleasure in like taking the people and there's a couple of bits like that as well where i think dorian says oh the way the way you see something it's not a quick death they're taking the time they're relishing in it in the kill like you say it's so brutal compared to normal love it that sort of goes into what you mentioned earlier with the marcus and um getting the sample thing so it marcus is the android you know blues pilot in it she wants this sample and she's been unable to to get it so far, you know, try to quickly grab this, um, well, prove it exists to start with, because uh, for most of her experimentation, it's, it's a theory. She wants to prove this uh, plagiarious prepotence exists. And she ultimately gets the sample by getting Marcus, this android, to get face-hooked. And I wasn't sure how I felt about this moment, to be honest, um, in regards of getting the face hugger to react to him but they made the you know alex puts across this point of it 
being the fear that it detects sort of through uh, through the fast breathing kind of thing that gets the face hugger to eventually emerge I'm not sure that really works especially like with um kane being face hugged through a spacesuit kind of thing but yeah what what did you guys think of of that moment of of a synthetic being face hugged i think the bit i liked most about that was once it's it's leapt out of the egg and latched onto him it apparently realizes that he isn't human and tries to get back off and it's only because blue controlling marcus sort of forces her her face onto the floor with this thing trapped and like crushes it and forces it to impregnate her i thought that was a neat touch that it, it was aware that it had made a mistake and tried to escape and i presume go and hide and wait for an actual person to come along i thought that was a really like a really yeah. li- neat little uh bit of intelligence she like squeeze its glands as well to make sure it it does it yeah. it's like it's yeah. the total opposite like the basically the, the alien is supposed to rape the human not in this case this is yeah. a complete reversal. I, I thought it was really cool. I don't I don't know. I think some people are going to have trouble with believing it, finding it believable. But again, it's something I loved. It's something he just turned on its head again. Yeah, I thought it was some genius uh, writing. Yeah, to- totally in terms of, of that kind of thing. Um, but it's like a law nitpick. I'm not sure I'm... It's like with David um, in the old... Spacer script sort of tickling an egg out kind of uh, tickling a face hugger out of an egg kind of thing it's like i love the concept behind it but i'm not quite sure if i buy it but he does play with some of the aspects with her normal body functions like breathing transmitting into the android because of how her brain works if those things are being transmitted like i i, I don't know I, I don't know how any of it works so this was something a bit outside my realms of knowledge, but it was something I was thinking as well. It was like, how could an android be producing breath? I mean, surely they wouldn't give it fucking lungs. <laughs> I, I don't know. Obviously. Who knows? But then this was a point that was raised on the um, the forums, on, on our forums actually recently, was obviously because the, the androids in the films are played by humans, they're breathing. So whether that's just like could be in terms of in terms of the films and the visuals anyways, that's just something androids look like they're doing just to simulate, you know, a real person. But whether they would be actual breath or not. So I don't know, because I think the whole point with a lot of the android stuff is that people feel uncomfortable around them. When they don't look perfect. So I suppose, yeah. I suppose if they're not breathing, is that not again added into the, uh, you're, you're clearly different to me. You're not breathing. You don't need to breathe. So that makes people feel uncomfortable comfortable again i don't know i suppose that's a lot of uh, uh, you could have a, a pretty decent discussion on that and it's you know it, it's one of them things where it'd be an interesting topic to see what people think mm. that's a whole there's <laughs> a whole yep. other discussion into it yep but what about the eggs then this is the this is the bugbear for um some people is the book doesn't address where the eggs came from now i don't think it matters in the narrative of the book i personally didn't feel so what about you guys <laughs> I think it hints that they come from LV426, I guess, but I have no idea when they got them. Alex said in an interview that's where he envisioned they came from, um, but I don't think... I, I never got the hint from the book, just only from, from chatting to, to Alex. Yeah, when I when I read it, I, uh, I, I'm not sure I even... I mean, I suppose the question came into my head initially, but then I, I quickly forgot about it. It's... 
it's kind of irrelevant to the story. And having since listened to your interview with Alex, um, I don't know if I like his idea of where they came from, but he's bang on the money when he says that no one on the Cold Forge needs to know where these eggs come from. You know, Blue doesn't need to know where the eggs came from to do her research. So why would she be told? You know, it's not like this is something you can pick up in the shop around the corner. You know, this is some really top secret shit that has come from somewhere. You're not going to tell, you know, John Smith, who's poking it with a scalpel where it's come from, because he doesn't need to know. And you don't want that information getting out. So I thought he was right. It doesn't matter in the book. It's not relevant to the book. And having since heard his explanation, I think the book is better without it. No offense to him, of course, but, you know, it, 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 I don't. I just think that the, the timing of him saying they've come from LV426 before before Aliens has happened, you know, it, it didn't work for me. I think it's better left mysterious. I'd agree with that. Yeah, having had the chance to think about it, I, I agree there. Um, one of the theories that was thrown up on, on the boards, though, was the idea that perhaps it came from the Torrens. You know, perhaps after the event of isolation, they might have, Hive might have sprang up on there. And Yeah, I think the trouble with that is... They say at the start of the book they've got something like 60-odd adult aliens in the kennels, plus they've got some legs eggs left over, plus it's mentioned that Blue has actually terminated a lot of the creatures before they grow to maturity because she's only interested in the facehugger. Um, and I think there's just too many eggs. That implies that there are far too many eggs for them to have come off the Torrens to me. You know, they obviously have a significant number of them. But I would definitely... Alex has expressed an interest in doing a short story about it. And maybe if he... Oh, I welcome him to come back and write this. Even if I don't particularly love his theory, I'd still be all for reading, you know, that, that story if he's writing it. Because I enjoyed this book so much that, you know, he could write a story about Marcus painting a wall and I'd probably read that shit. <laughs> Fair enough. I'd definitely like to see him back. Uh, something though, another thing, a little thing that I wanted to mention that I thought was um, really interesting was the security measures for the alien kennels with the sun shield. That is something really different and really interesting. Yeah, that was well thought out. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's what this book is. It's just every little thing seems to be really well thought out. Uh, everything is logical. It makes sense. It's al- almost all the time it's interesting, but you can tell that he's really thought about all of this. It helps a lot of it seems to come from his own experience because by all accounts he was involved with special projects kind of things. Yeah, he's been domesticating aliens for quite some time. <laughs> Maybe something a little bit more terrestrial based than that. But, <laughs> but I know what you mean. That was, uh, I think, the thing I found most interesting about the interview was the fact that he's been in a similar kind of world in terms of you know classified R&D and that he could put so much of that obliquely into the novel i thought that was really interesting and it shows you can tell that as i said when you realize how well thought out all these things are even when he mentioned that the code names you know glitter edifice silver smile you can't work out anything about what those projects about from those code names Uh you know they're they're, the virus isn't like you know i don't know black death or you know or (laughs) there is nothing in it yeah, exactly. There is nothing in it that can in what the project is actually about, and that is something that he got from his own personal experience. Uh, that had a whole extra layer of authenticity to it. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so shall we shall we talk secondary characters then? We've talked Blue, we've talked Aliens, we've talked Dorian. This book has a fairly decent cast. And one of the <laughs> one of the other interesting things to come out of our chat with my chat with Alex was this idea of an experiment that he played with Lucy. <laughs> was, this was great. Who was the project lead for Silver Smile? She, you know, was a coding kind of guru apparently who wrote this mask master virus and she's the one that ultimately betrays um the cold forge she's a corporate sort of spy for um for Siegson without necessarily knowing it she's sort of um compromised and forced to forced to allow her virus to fuck up the system but this thing that Alex told told me was that he he found Lucy Blander in the early draft that he did of the book so he went back and he had all the characters describe her in hateful ways whenever they were you know their internal monologuing kind of thing for somebody who necessarily wasn't on the surface you know a bad a bad guy she wasn't somebody that you had a massive reason to hate obviously other than her being the the corporate stooge um not the spy i think that was only through blackmail though wasn't it yeah it was it was through blackmail but she's she still did it but whatever um but yeah, Alex wanted to see if he could make the readers dislike this character purely through his own characters constantly referring to her in in negative ways. Did that work? What did you guys think of Lucy? Snivelling, crying, bug-eyed Lucy. Oh, here we are again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he, I think his experiment worked because again, I didn't like Lucy, but then, like you said in the interview, you are given no reason not to like her. None whatsoever. Other than the, uh, the virus spreading thing. Yeah, but the virus isn't uh, yeah, what's we... killing everybody. So. Yeah, well, yeah, when she unleashes the virus, she has no idea that the aliens are going to get out. Because, you know, she'd say, fuck off, I'm not doing that. Well, she's the, just the, told the aliens to... were unable to get out. That's the thing, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. She, she's just told to go plug this virus into Juno. Because, you know, we want to fuck up all the research on this place. The aliens getting out is incidental of her. I mean, it's it's seeks and agents again, but it's not her doing. So all she's really doing is, is you know, sabotaging some research because seeks and have got her over a barrel. You know, she yep. she doesn't really do anything badly wrong. I will grant you that. As, as for the experiment, um, I think I'm immune because I didn't particularly i kind of felt a bit sorry for lucy to be honest so i think i maybe just all that stuff just went right over my head because you know she doesn't die well and oh it's and, an awesome and, death and Dor- dorian is just a dick to her in her final few you know minutes just it's really just <laughs> psychologically brutal how cool it? was it uh so, yeah I, I like i said i i kind of sympathized so i guess i'm not terribly suggestible i felt sorry for her but i couldn't help but laugh as soon as he's <laughs> as soon as doria said i'm a Siegson agent and i'm going this is not gonna end good <laughs> <laughs> She annoyed the shit out of me. It really, <laughs> it really worked. It really worked. Oh, dear. Because by the end of it, I was just like, oh, shut up, Lucy. Stop crying. Always trying. <laughs> when, when you think about it, what, everything that's happened is bad and upsetting. And you're like, no, gross. <laughs> Stop crying. Try and help people. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like, she was crying all the time, but 
I'd probably be fucking sniveling in the corner. If, yep, exactly. You know, if there was, you know, alien murder beasts running around, you know, putting babies in people and tearing them limb from limb, you know. So I, like <laughs> I said, I, I, I kind of sympathised with her, you know. So. It's funny because, like, let's face it, in, the, in real life, there's always that guy that or that girl that you just hate and you can't explain why you hate them so much. Oh, yeah, fair enough, yeah. We've all been there. But going back to... You mentioned about like um, the alien release being incidental, and I I said that you know Silver Smile couldn't have got involved with the uh, with the breakout, and that this is another one of those elements of detail and um, thoughtfulness that I think really really helped the book was that you know he made Alex made a point of saying that the the alien cells weren't networked, they, it was physically yeah they, there was literally a switch that a person had to pull to let them out so no amount of hacking could possibly get near them now this is something that makes me even more disappointed in the real villain of this book and that's javier (laughs) i can't help but feel this is your being in the it profession perhaps leaking through i'm really interested here yeah because i don't see javier as a bad guy i'm really (laughs) interested to see where this goes this is just professional Oh, completely, but... So, Professional, judgmental... <laughs> Javier is the um, is the IT guy for the Cold Forge, basically. And everybody panics because Silver Smile gets out and he fucks up um, all the, the data, all the experimental data, all Rose Eagle's um, software and, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, that one had actually was on time and finished and the guy was due to ship off. And the reason I'm so fucking pissed off with this character uh, is because he didn't have regular unnetworked um, backups of everything in a safe somewhere on the Cold Forge that would have prevented all this fucking panic. Because <laughs> they could have just well, what, what, like what they did, they you know they they flashed it and tried to rebuild it all, and there would have been no panic because all their data would have been restorable you know it might have been a week old it might have been a month old it depended on you know how frequent you did it but it would have been there and it wasn't such a big deal that this is guy's, that completely passed me by this guy's preventative maintenance was fucking <laughs> awful <laughs> awful I'm, actually i think dorian calls him out on it yeah <laughs> as well doesn't he say your cyber security is shit at yeah, some yeah, point yeah oh my god i totally missed it <laughs> And, and even even you know just off the side of that, Blue does have her own backup because she has her own server completely disconnected from everything. For it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and gets called out for it. <laughs> it's no fucking pleasing some people. Nope. But no, that that is why Javier is really the villain of the book, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, he gets his fucking hands eaten off. So you know. He'll never type any passwords ever again. <laughs> um, so, Chris, you you had a um, a bugbear with Anne, who we've previously mentioned. Do you want to? I did. So, Anne is a former colonial marine, and when everything initially kicks off, she's this real presence. I'll say she's like a commanding presence. She's like a survivor. Uh, she puts Dorian in his place numerous times, and then there's a, a bit where uh, the Athenia rips off uh, the, the, the dock, which causes uh, 
decompression. And again, Dorian's like, oh, no, just shut it. Leave all the people there. Leave them to die. And she's like, no, go fuck yourself, and goes and rescues people. And then as soon as that happens, they end up taking the survivors from there into a room, and it's a case, uh, is is it the airlock, I think? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they, yeah. They think they've yeah. got the bends. Yeah. 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 And, and it's a case of, oh, I'll just follow everything you say now, Dorian, because you've been a great moral compass so far. She just, like, collapses. And just... <sighs> I, I think it's from... It's like a couple of little moments from this point. So Javier realises he needs to go out and um, try and uh, get some of the systems back online. And it's at this point that Dorian offers to go with him. Obviously, at this point, in Dorian's mind, it's because he doesn't know the the spy is at this point, the the traitor is. So he wants to go with him to make sure it's not Javier. and, And then takes everybody else to her thing. And I think... It's when it looks like that Dorian's sort of going out of his way to help be the hero, be the hero, that she sort of sort of sways a little bit into you know buying that whole thing. And then again, when he and her go out to ostensibly get supplies for everybody, you know that sort of reinforces it there. But it's only that little part that I think she sort of acquiesces to some of his authority, especially still as he's like the remaining corporate boss anyway because when you mentioned yeah. when you mentioned it to me i i looked for it and that was like really the only bit that i thought that showed up in and i, I thought it was played into within the narrative quite well with him playing but even dorian mentions it so when when he comes back without javier she's like oh oh he just died okay fine she's not, she's not even interested and he's even like you should be pissed in his head because he, he like he like monologues to himself a lot. Uh, he's even saying like, "Oh, she's not, she's not even asking me why. Why isn't she angry that I've not brought Javier back? She should be like down my throat about it, but she's not." And that's where he starts seeing her as being weak. That's because she's brought to... into the hero thing, hasn't she? At this point. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I she seemed a lot more intelligent than that up to that point. I, I don't know. I just don't find the collapse of a character believable. It's the old... Only little bugbear I've really got with this this book is Anne. Did you pick up on that at all, Lee? Uh, no, to be honest. Until, uh, but now that you, now that you've brought it up, um, Chevy, I yeah, I kind of get what you mean. Um, but it certainly wasn't something that jumped out at me at the time. And and as Hick said, um, Dorian went out of his way there to pres- even though his motives were actually incredibly selfish. He didn't want Javier. If Javier was the saboteur, he didn't want him getting into the mainframe because, you know, he could open the airlock with them all still in it. But he, you know, in Anne's eyes, he's going out of his way to, to you know, unfuck this situation and try and save everyone that's still in So I can kind of see her buying into that. And also, originally, she was second in command on the station. So I could kind of understand her being predisposed to following Rather, you know, she, she was, Commander Cardozo was above her. Oh. I can kind of buy into her being predisposed to following a leader rather than taking charge herself. Yeah, but, 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 but being second to an auditor. Yeah, no, I, I, I do get your point. But as I said, it wasn't something that I noticed myself until you've raised it. And I think I would it, need to read it again. It that. honestly could be the problem of being the audience. So you're reading it. You know how bad Dorian is. So yeah. may, maybe I'm falling into some of that. 
I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, she liked him enough to sleep with him, so he's obviously putting I think, up different for her. I'm not sure if that was for uh, selfish reasons again, though. <laughs> Trying to get some informations. Yeah, true, but you know, like like I said, it was it was not something that I noticed, so um, I'd have to I'll, I'll keep out keep an eye out for it if I reread the book, which I'm sure I will at some point. Was there any sort of secondary character stuff that shone out to you, Lee, at all? Not really, just how most of them were well-developed enough that I could remember them. I mean, at the very end, there's a few sort of faceless redcoats that are there just to get mauled by the aliens that Dorian's unleashing on them, which was a, a wonderful sequence. But um, yep. mostly the secondary characters are, are reasonably memorable. You know, they mm-hmm. I could I can sort of pick them all out from 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 each other. Uh, so yeah, another tick in the plus column. Okay. Yep. Especially poor Nick. I'll always remember Nick. <laughs> poor Nick. <laughs> yeah. uh, he gets it bad. It's when uh, Dorian's really going for it. <laughs> when yeah. he goes full side. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chevy, uh, this this is sort of specific to you, I guess. Okay. Since you don't really read books per se uh, these days. No, I don't tend to get time these days. You uh, you listen to them. I do. So. The reason we sort of this podcast has taken this long was obviously for the audio book to come out for Chevy to listen to. Yeah, it took ages. So I remember you complaining about the Covenant audio book. So as our like audio book expert here, I guess, <laughs> do you want to give okay. do you want to give us like a brief summer a brief review, I guess, of um, of Cold Forges as audio book. Yeah, sure. To be honest with you, this was way better than the Covenant one. The, the, the voices that he puts on for different characters are good. Like I said, uh, Dick with the Aussie accent is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. It's just, it helps you uh, see him a bit better, if, if you know what I mean. Uh, the only problems I really had with the audiobook, which I, I brought up to you, uh, Aaron, was sometimes I missed out on visualizing things uh for example i said i said to you that I, I didn't know i didn't have any idea what blue looked like none whatsoever so i don't know if that's me zoning out during listening but 100 percent. yeah you reckon yeah. so uh well, i i do the same with um with audiobooks so i i brought this one as well to listen to primarily because when i was we were going to record this originally i was going to a convention so i had like four hours in the car so i, I thought i'd you know buy the book and listen to four hours worth of the book and flick between reading yeah. and listening and i don't generally listen to audiobooks in the car because i do the exact same thing yeah you can zone out it's possible that's why it took me three attempts three goes at going through it in a short period so if you, I mean, you think about it that's that's pretty good that's like 24 hours worth of uh no that's more cold it's, forge listening it's 12 hours a piece mate is it 12 hours i it's thought it was eight no it's 12 hours oh damn see so it's a good book guys good book <laughs> yeah i'd highly recommend this over the covenant one i did not like the covenant audio one at all what about against the rest of them because this is how you've listened to all of them you've read all of them isn't it yeah i mean i, I wouldn't well, put them the in the same one sorry yeah i wouldn't put it in the same category as the dirk microphones because they're a totally different drama beast. isn't it it's not all yeah books. They're, they're amazing oh they're fantastic but, uh, yeah i i'd 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 put it up there with uh, the the Shadows trilogy with uh, River of Pain, Sorrows, 
Uh, even the Rage Wars, they're all equally good, in my opinion. As audiobooks. It's just the Covenant ones. As audiobooks, it's just the Covenant one drove me up the wall. That guy. <laughs> I just talked like this for female voices. Because that's good. <laughs> Awful. Do not get that one. And uh, just to throw out there, while we did mention the audio dramas, there's a really awesome fan one that I'm really enjoying at the minute called Alien Solara. I've posted it a few times on the on the website and on the socials. Um, I do recommend going and giving those a listen and giving that guy some support. And the Perfect Organism Boys, they did a uh, two-part one around New Year, actually, if I remember rightly, which is, is available on their websites. And that's their take on the, uh, the Fall of Hadley's Hope. I'd recommend giving that one a go as well. Right, I'm talked out of um, talking points, guys. So is there anything else about the Cold Forge that you wanted to bring up or chat about? Cool. I mean, I could talk about Suddler all day, but <laughs> kind of ridden that boat. <laughs> Bye, Yuli. You all talked out? Uh, yeah, I think, um, I think I'm... I mean, I feel like I should pick on a, like a, a criticism just because we've all gushed so remorselessly about this book. Uh, but there honestly wasn't really anything. I mean, if I was being really picky, I thought the very final scene of the book where uh, Blue has escaped the station, uh, it's it's presumably fallen into the star and been destroyed. And then she uh, she's now being debriefed by some Sikhs and guys uh, and they reveal that it was them that were behind the saboteurs on the station and, uh, and then ask her to, you know, to come and work for them and help them, you know, develop this technology. That I, I thought that was a little bit of a cliche, just in terms of, you know, sort of the evil corporation angle. But it was such a minor quibble, given the quality of the rest of the book. And it, to be honest, even that had a little bit of a t- notice the first time around, which is that the Sikhs and guys basically say, we want to buy a 5% stake in Wayland yutani and this Xenomorph research is our ticket into that. So we're basically going to come to them and say, oh, look what we've got. You give us a 5% share. You can have this stuff. And I, I completely missed that the first time around. And that, again, was turning a stereotype on its head. So, yeah, it would be an incredibly minor criticism of the book. Yeah, that links in as well with them to uh, losing the money's worth of the research station, which would open up the gap. To allow them to yes, do yeah, that's right. Yeah, because yeah. she asks, why didn't they try and save the people on the Cold Forge? Because they could have done. Yeah, it, it's it's revealed that throughout the book they're waiting nearby that are offering to extract blue, and and as Chevy says, they could have come in and and saved everyone, but they didn't. They let them all die. They also were hacked, Marcus as well. Marcus. Oh, we never touched on Marcus gaining a bit of a personality towards the end as well. That is. I think that's another one of those cliches that he still, Alex still somehow makes really interesting. Well, the thing I liked about it is it kind of hinted at David in Covenant having gone batshit because he's been on this planet by himself. And throughout the book, whenever Marcus started showing hints of personality, he kind of, Alex White kind of played with it where there could be a malicious angle to this. You know, he could be malfunctioning. This could be bad news. So it was never just him becoming human and becoming, you know, one of us. It was always sort of hinted at that this could actually be a really bad thing because something's going wrong in his programming. And that was a nice little touch. Uh, yeah. And this is, so I particularly um, liked the... Uh, oh, go on. 
I was just going to add some context as well in case folk had forgotten. This is in terms of um, Blue killing a character while she was piloting Marcus, yes. which is obviously against the um, the three laws of Asimov. Yeah, because I think he more or less says, doesn't he, uh, what happened to Javier? And she says, I, I had to kill him. And she goes, well, I trusted you. I see the best in all people, and I trusted you, and you betrayed that trust. Like, you, you know, it's... I'm not allowed to kill. It goes against my program. And then even Blue's then wondering, what has she done emotionally mm. to Mar- Marcus? What is she, could, could she have broken something by doing what she's done? Even though, really, what she's done is, done, is, is a mercy to poor Javier, because he's in a bit of a way. Marcus yeah, he, he begs her to do it, doesn't he? Yeah. he Marcus would have just, uh, you'll be a fine chap. Well, I think Marcus but, no. would have probably tried to help him get out and carry him out. Possibly. But I don't think... I don't think it would have been a life worth living with how broken he sounded. Well, but Blue says it herself, you know, what was best for Javier was outside of Marcus's parameters. Realms. He, yeah, yep. he, he couldn't he couldn't make that decision because he only has, you know, what he's programmed with, whereas she was able to see beyond, you know, life and death and, you know, make the, the human decision. Because there's a bit as well towards the end, isn't there, where she's saying, are you, are you happy I, I survived? I made it back and not and he says I can't remember exactly what he says but he basically turns around and says no no I'm not happy it's like ooh what yeah. is going on in Mar- with Marcus right now but unfortunately nothing really else goes on from that I'd really like to have seen a bit more Marcus but then would, that, the would that have been skewing too close to David anyway if we're not got a fill of crazy maybe, androids at the minute maybe <laughs> I, th- I think it was a nice window mm. as to what could be Certainly. I know something else to ask um, you guys, because this book is in present tense, which is not a typical... I, I mean, I don't personally read a lot of first-person books. Um, not first-person, uh, present tense books. So that sort of took me back when I started reading it. But I personally, I, I quickly adapted, because I have in my time read a lot of scripts, and a lot of them are in the present tense. So did that did that bother any of you guys? Not only did I not notice, I managed to get to chapter six second time around after having the first the uh, the present tense thing pointed out to me before I noticed that it was written in present tense. So <laughs> no, it didn't. I, it went completely over my head. I didn't notice it at all. But I, I, well, I, I've seen a lot of people mentioning it. So see, and I didn't notice it either until I was talking to you, Aaron, about not being able to visualize certain things, and I was wondering if that might have been it when you pointed it out. It probably was just me zoning out. So again, um, even I didn't notice it. <laughs> fair enough. I mean, I, I I liked Alex's thinking about it. Was that the idea that stuff in the past tense leaves the implication that somebody's surviving, and uh, the present tense added a level of uncertainty to it. I mean, I don't know if I yep. consciously considered any of that at all. Again, I was just used to it myself. So, however, in future, if you ever came back and did another alien book. In the present tense, I would be wondering. Something to keep him. Hopefully he'll come back. Come back. So, yeah. <laughs> that Final question, then, is do we want Alex back? And I'm assuming the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Absolutely. But I think part of me will be worried that he won't be able to write another book that lives up to this. That would be my that would that would be my only reservation, because this this book has has. You know, the impression I've got, at least, is this book has gone down so well. And for me personally, 
I've enjoyed it so much that I don't know if I want him to come back and write a book that wasn't as good. But at the same time, if he did come back and write a book, you bet your ass I'd have that shit on pre-order. Like, <laughs> I would, I would absolutely read it. So yes, but like I said, yep. I'd be, I'd be worried that he wouldn't be able to make uh, lightning strike twice. I guess that's the problem with coming out of it hitting so hard. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm the kind of guy who'd rather risk it. So yeah. I've, I've enjoyed. I enjoyed the Cold Forge that much, and I enjoyed chatting to Alex that much that I went out and brought a book that didn't sound like something on the surface I'd enjoy. A book that I thoroughly enjoyed. Anyway, um, so that's two wins for Alex for me, and I, I can't, I can't not want him back. You know, to, to have a consistent flow of books at such a high quality would be such a boon for the series. And I'm not, I'm not ragging on any of the other stuff. Aside from Bug Hunt, I think the last four years of alien, um, alien novels and Predator novels have been fantastic. They've been great. They've been very solid, aside from a few Fox forced inclusions. But this was just a step above. Um, the Cold Forge was a step above all those. And I would love to see that that good of quality consistently. Yeah, I'd absolutely love to see him back as well. I mean, hopefully we'll continue on doing our own side stories. So let's, let's leave like the, the alien canon, if you like, that story arc alone. It's, not, it's okay having a few nods like we've had in this book, but if we keep doing our own thing, uh, I think it, it could be a good thing for us as alien fans if he comes back. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a concession I will make. I uh, Off the back of this, I am planning to track down his latest novel and uh, if i read that and it's you know of comparable quality to this then i'm sure that my opinion on, on him coming back will probably change to a a more firm yes i do recommend it mate i really yeah enjoy yeah it. you've you've said it's good and like i said i've enjoyed this so much and the interview with him as well really swayed me because he uh, he sounds like a really switched on bloke um so i've i've been keeping an eye out for it but i ain't seen a copy for sale anywhere yet but i'll uh I got mine off Amazon. Yeah, I'll have to Amazon that thing. Right, well, I think we're all we're all gushed out then. In that case, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry it took so long for this one to get, to uh, get out. I'm going to try and be a bit more on the ball with um, with novel stuff. See if we get any going forward. What with all this Disney crap going off, but let's not end on a Debbie Downer. Um, as always, you know, thank you everybody for listening. Um, We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the points we've raised on on the subject, and you know, please feel free to um, post on on the on the uh, website or on the the social outlets that we'll be sharing this to. Um, if you've got any suggestions or any feedback or anything in general that you just want to tell us, then you know you can email podcast at avpgalaxy.net. And thank you for everybody that has been writing in to um, tell us about the show and what you've thought of the show. If you if you don't already visit the website you can find us on avpgalaxy.net um, we're on all the socials on facebook as alien alien vs predator galaxy instagram as well and we're on twitter as avpgalaxy and i think youtube is avpgalaxy uh, lee do you want to tell folk where they can uh, find xenopedia yep yeah, yeah. Uh, by all means come along it's avp.wikia.com but Alien versus Predator Wiki should bring it up for you. And, uh, yeah, come along. Get involved. Unfortunately, Chevy doesn't have any... Uh... No websites. <laughs> Although you do have a Twitter, if good. you want to give that out. I mean, I don't really uh, care. No. 
particularly, but if, if you want to follow me, uh, sometimes we tweet some, me and Aaron pl- try and play AVP The Hunt Begins every month. So that's, that's your fancy. Uh, at CT Chevy 86. Okay. And I'm personally on Twitter as at underscore Corporal Hicks. And I think that's everything then. So hopefully you haven't heard my cat meowing over this last half of the <laughs> podcast because he's just been sat outside the door whinging. But yeah. So, um, thank you everybody for listening. This has been Corporal Hicks. And who the fuck am I? And Chevy. Signing off.